Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. History Hit and Assassin's Creed presents Assassins vs. Templars. Real histories of the secret orders. Welcome to the inside of one of history's greatest stories. I'm Matt Lewis, and in this collaboration between Ubisoft and History Hit, we're taking you back to the very beginning. The story of Assassin's Creed is one of deadly rivalry between conflicting ideologies that asks whether peace is found through freedom or control. It began with Assassins and Templars racing to gather the pieces of Eden in the fiery heat of the Near East amidst brutal religious upheavals. We're all Desmond Miles now and we've found our animus. A team of the best historians working in their fields will unlock the memories of the past for us, lead us through their secrets, and introduce us to some of the real people who inspired the game. It's time to break into the vaults of two of history's most infamous organisations as we pit the Assassin's Creed against the Templar Order. In this episode, I'm joined by Mike Carr from the University of Edinburgh to talk all about the fall of the Templars. Thank you very much for joining us, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you on to talk about the climactic fall of the Templar Order. Can you paint a picture for us to start off with of just how powerful and wealthy and influential the Templars were, kind of at the height of their power? When is this and, and just how powerful are they? Okay, I mean, there's two ways to think about this. The Templars, they're, they're sort of an, an international order that have possessions all across Latin Europe, but also in the Middle East as well. So in terms of their, their wealth and power, it's worth taking these two sort of regions together and comparing them and seeing how it all works out. So at the time of their arrest in 1307, they have a very extensive possessions all across Latin Christendom. So predominantly in France, but also in Iberia, in Italy, England, places like that. And we're talking about almost a thousand different Templar estates. And these would have been sort of made up of mills and farms and and things like that for sort of agricultural production, other kinds of production, which would have generated the wealth of the order. And then they also have their military side, which is sort of mostly to do with the defence of the Latin East. And probably the height of their sort of military power is a little bit earlier, so in the 12th and 13th centuries. And it's said that the Templars, probably by the end of the 12th century, in terms of a sort of military context, have something like 600 knights in the Holy Land, in the different Crusader states, um, with around 2,000 other fighting men as part of the order. So they're a considerable fighting force. I mean, it's difficult to sort of put it in context, but they form quite a considerable and, and important part of the armies of the Latin East and in, in the Crusader states. So you have this sort of two facets. You've got these 
extensive possessions in Western Europe, and the money that's generated by them is supporting the armies in the East, and they're also garrisoning castles and other strongholds and things like that in the East. And in addition to that, the thing that links it together is the ships and the transport and the, I suppose, the logistical networks that stretch from Europe to the Eastern Mediterranean. So I think that hopefully paints a picture of the sort of scale and the international scope of the order really at its height. So it's extensive territories in the West generating money for this military activity in the East. And in terms of their sort of their influence, I mean, it's partly financial because of the possessions they have in the West and the money that they're generating and also military. So a lot of it's to do with crusading. So they're advising monarchs about crusading strategy. They're giving advice and taking part in the leadership of crusades in the East. But whether or not they have extensive influence in terms of domestic policies within Europe, I think that's more debatable. And maybe the sort of more common and sort of modern perception of the Templars are of group that really are influential in European politics. And I think maybe that's an overstatement, but they are very important in terms of the Crusades and the military activities in the Eastern Mediterranean. And I guess even if they're not directly involved in domestic policy, their focus on the Crusades necessarily drive some domestic policies and financial policies and things like that. Exactly. And I guess in the game, you know, the, the Templars still exist and they're an organisation that are fronted by a huge multinational corporation. That seems like a fairly reasonable modern parallel for what the Templars were at their height. Yeah, exactly. And I think in some ways, there's not really many or any other medieval entity that sort of has this multinational status that the Templars do. I mean, the other military orders, I suppose, are comparable, like the Hospitallers and the Teutonic Knights. But the fact that they have territories that are sort of scattered throughout Europe, throughout the Mediterranean, throughout um, the East, and they're not sort of tied to any particular kingdom, they are sort of answerable to the papacy. They're a transnational corporation. So, yeah, in many ways, that does sort of match up with um, uh, with our perception. And by the start of the 14th century, they've accumulated and acquired all of this land and property in Western Europe predominantly. How have they acquired that? Is that just people giving them land as a way of supporting the crusade without going on crusade? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's a large part of it. People, yeah, making donations, obviously monetary donations, but also, yeah, donations of land um, they give to the Templars, yeah, in lieu of crusading, or even people who have gone on crusade, but still want to leave land and, and territories and and houses and things like that to, um, to the Templars after they die. So, yeah, they, they receive a lot of donations from the sort of aristocratic class in, in Europe, which really helps them to extend and sort of establish these, these territories in the West. It's incredible just how much they acquire from people just giving them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they do purchase land and things like that, but it's, yeah, the sort of driving force behind this, especially in the 12th century, is, is, you know, is the donations. And is there a moment when we see the tide begin to turn against the Templars? Can we see a pivot moment or is this a slowly changing attitude towards them? It's a bit of both. So on the one hand, the popularity and the reputation of the Templars, it's it's really tied in with the fate of the Holy Land. So in the, you know, sort of the, up to the mid-12th century, the Templars are, you know, obviously seen as being uh, very effective militarily and the Holy Land is, you know, things are generally going quite well. But when Saladin retakes Jerusalem in 1187 and you have the sort of decline of the Crusader states, temporarily at least, 
And the Templars get a lot of criticism for that because their ostensible aim and objective to defend the Holy Land. So when you have things going badly in the Holy Land, the Templars are blamed for that. And I suppose you can get all these people at home saying, I gave you loads of stuff to help. Exactly. And that's the problem for them. They're sort of catch-22 where they have all these donations and all this money they're sort of generating in the West. And then, yeah, therefore people are, you know, blaming them for things that are going wrong in the East. So, So in that sense, it's a sort of more gradual decline. And obviously in the 13th century, when things are sort of starting to look even worse in the Crusader states. Again, the Templars and the Teutonic Knights and the Hospitallers, Italian merchants also are, are criticised for this. But having said that, I think there's also particular moments and particular events which exacerbate the situation. And I suppose the main one would be the fall of Acre in 1291, so the fall of the Crusader states. And at that point, the Templars are obviously blamed partly for this along with some of these other people that I mentioned but also what they're unable to do really is to change their focus and and I suppose maintain their relevance in the post-crusader states world because obviously yeah their raison d'etre is gone there's no crusader states to to defend anymore they do try and recover the holy land and they take part in various ventures to do this but these are generally failures so I think 1291 is quite an important point at which I think yeah the Templars sort of fail to reimagine themselves and that leaves them open to criticism in the West. I was trying to think of a modern parallel and I guess the one in the game works. A pharmaceutical company that fronts the Templars, if they're suddenly not allowed to make drugs, you have to find something else to do and the Templars are guilty of just having no other focus but all of this wealth attracts attention, I guess. Exactly, yeah. And as I said before, it's this catch-22 when you've got all this money and yeah, this sort of seeming wealth in, in the West and all these possessions. And then you failed in your objective and you're not really seen to be, I mean, they're spending great amount of money trying to recover the Holy Land, but it's unsuccessful. So yeah, it just leads them open to this kind of criticism. And I think an interesting comparison there is um, to the other military orders. So the Teutonic Knights, they're able to go to Prussia and to Northern Europe and they carve out their own territories there and they're fighting the pagans there. The Hospitallers in 1306 embark on the conquest of Rhodes and they're seen as taking on the Turks and also the Byzantines on the sea. So these two military orders, the other two main ones, have a, you know, they're able to reinvent themselves and give themselves relevance in terms of defence of the faith, however that might be conceived. Whereas the Templars, they're the, the, the odd ones out, they're not able to do that, unfortunately, for them. And I think that, yeah, really leaves them open to criticism. It makes you wonder what might have happened if Richard I had left them Cyprus. And he gives them Cyprus and then takes it back, which would have been the equivalent of Rhodes, I guess, for the Hospitallers. Exactly. I mean, Cyprus is a funny one because obviously the Templars and the Hospitallers relocate to Cyprus after the fall of Acre in 1291. Um, but the Templars fall out with the Cypriot kings there. But yeah, I think at that point, Cyprus is seen as this really important bastion of the Latin East. And actually, yeah, it, if they'd kept hold of it, then that may have been very beneficial to them. And do we see any kind of, a, as their reputation is waning, do we see a kind of a, a propaganda campaign against the Templars? And if so, does that influence their reputation today and perhaps the way that they're portrayed in the game as this sort of slightly shadowy organisation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of the propaganda campaign against them, it's pretty much led by the French king and his advisors, Philip IV, France. And so it's very much a French thing. And the propaganda outside of the Kingdom of France and also the French propaganda and how it's perceived outside the kingdom is not really as effective. And I think this sort of negative view of the Templars is predominantly a French thing. So yeah, in terms of the propaganda, the kinds of things that we see in it are these accusations of heresy, along with also 
the Templars having money and not really doing anything with it. And in terms of the heretical accusations, they're the things that start to come up in the trial a couple of years later, a lot to do with the reception ceremonies, so secretive reception ceremonies where apparently they are denying Christ, spitting on the cross, engaging in sort of inappropriate kissing with the receiver sort of on the navel on the base of the spine and things like that and then when they're joining the order they're engaging in sodomy and also idol worship and things like that so it's these kinds of heretical accusations that are starting to emerge in the french propaganda in the years before the trial as i said before this is spread within france it's also there are attempts to spread this more widely in europe but i mean it's difficult to gauge popular perceptions of propaganda and impact but it seems that it's not really believed by by people outside of France um, in any great way. But in terms of the reputation and, yeah, how it's impacted on modern views of the Templars, then absolutely, I think a lot of this idea of them being secretive and potentially heretical or engaging in occult activities and that kind of stuff, that I think very much derives from this sort of propaganda campaign that the French uh, royal agents are embarking on in a few years before the trial. And I guess it's not dissimilar to what we see around the Masons and things like that as well. You know, wherever there's the potential for secrecy, people will read into that whatever they want. And if you want to destroy someone, a secret place is a good place to go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, 100% right. And, and what's interesting with the Masons is they, yeah, they sort of really buy into this idea of the Templars being sort of secretive and they invent all this sort of crazy stuff to do with the Templars. But actually the sort of propaganda is almost flipped and the negative portrayals of the Templars are almost cast in a more positive light by the Masons. So they're sort of saying, yeah, okay, the Templars are secretive, but actually they have the secret wisdom that they're trying to protect against the papacy and the king and these authorities that are trying to persecute them. So in a way, it's taking ideas of the French propaganda, but sort of flipping it and turning it into a positive. And for the Masons themselves, they track their lineage back to the Templars. So it's sort of, yeah, they're seeing this in a far more uh, positive light than the French propagandists were, but it's the same kind of ideas surrounding secrecy and blasphemy and things like that. So it sounds like the efforts to bring the Templars down were really focused in France and led by Philip IV. Why was he particularly harsh on the Templars? Why did he target them? Yeah, that's I mean, that's a really important question. So with Philip himself, there's a few things going on, a sort of background to the arrest in 1307 that I think need to be understood to work out well, why he was doing this. I mean, the first thing that's worth mentioning is that Philip has form in terms of opposing the papacy and trying to sort of assert his authority over the church. So at the turn of the 14th century, there's this big conflict between Philip IV and the Pope at the time, Boniface VIII. And this is essentially over church finance and Philip's trying to get hold of taxation of the French church. And eventually this results in Philip accusing the Pope or Philip's advisors accusing the Pope of similar crimes to what the Templars were accused of. So idol worship, consorting with demons, sodomy, blasphemy, all sorts of trumped up heretical accusations. And eventually this results in Philip sending one of his advisors, uh, Guillaume Nogare, with a small army to Anagni, where the Pope is based at the time, to basically arrest him and bring him back to France to stand trial for these, uh, these accusations. And actually what happens is that the French army sort of rough up the Pope. The Pope actually escapes, but he dies a few weeks later. So the French and Philip IV have confronted the papacy, accused the Pope of heretical accusations similar to the Templars, and actually resulted in the Pope's death. And afterwards, the years after this, the accusations against Boniface are written up and expanded on by the French royal court, and they are 
put to successive new popes and the sort of pressure is put on the popes to allow the French to try their predecessor, Boniface VIII, for heresy. So there's this big cloud that's cast over the papacy during the trial of the French and Philip IV basically trying to exert his power over the Pope. So that's the first thing. And obviously the Templars, as a military religious order, they're answering to the papacy. They've lost their main protector in the papacy is unable to stand up against Philip. So that's the first thing that allows Philip to go after the Templars. And the second thing, probably more important, is finance. So when Philip becomes um, king, he inherits quite a lot of debt from his father. His father had died on a crusade against the Aragonese in 1285, and there was lots of debt from that. Philip's also engaged in wars against England and later on against Flanders as well, which are very expensive. And then to add to this, there's problems with the amount of silver circulating in Europe, and this is causing economic difficulties within the Kingdom of France. And Philip is essentially debasing the coinage in France. He debases it six times in the two years running up to the trial, just to give you an idea of the problems there. And actually, there's riots in Paris about uh, about the economic problems in December of 1306, so a few months before the Templars are arrested. And what Philip actually does to try and alleviate this is he seizes um, the property of Lombard communities a couple of times in France, and then also of the Jews in 1306. And he actually expels about 100,000 Jews from France in order to get their money and to get their silver, especially, so he can sort out his own coinage. So there, it's a pattern here where this guy has massive debts, real problems with the coinage. He needs precious metals. He needs money in order to sort this out, to sort out the economy of his kingdom. I think what you can see there, though, is quite a populist, what we might call today a populist agenda, that he's targeting people who are easy to target, mm -hmm. driving hatred towards them, pushing them away, but it's actually all about getting power and money out of them. Exactly. And in a way, what Philip's doing is comparable to what we see throughout history, really. And he's very good at doing this, how they prosecute this propaganda campaign. And also the seizure of goods of these minority groups is very effectively sort of carried out. So with the Jews, he manages to sort of arrest and sort of seize the properties of the Jews in, in almost a day in 1306. And with the arrest of the Templars as well, this happens in a day. And it's sort of um, this incredibly sort of fast and efficient way of moving against the group without them really having any idea that this is going to happen. So yeah, he's very effective and he combines this with the propaganda and, and things like that. Like he's got his top 10 heresies and a, a playbook that works, yeah. and he just rolls it out against the Templars when the time's right. Exactly. And everything else fits in. The Templars, you know, with the fall of the Holy Land, they're an easier target than they would have been pre-1291. The papacy's not going to be able to help them because of what's happened with Boniface VIII. So really, when you look at it from a historical point of view and you see all these things happening, it almost looks inevitable that the Templars will be the next target. But it's all about Philip. If Philip wasn't king, the Templars wouldn't have been arrested. I mean, it's purely down to his um, need for the money, in my view, anyway. However, I want to just sort of complicate that slightly. And I think, yes, he's financially motivated, but also I don't think we should necessarily presume that he doesn't believe the accusations of heresy as well. And this idea, these sort of trumped up accusations that I mentioned before, they are sort of quite widespread within European thinking at that time. And I think from what we know of Philip's character, he is very religiously conservative and pious. So he might have actually had a sort of genuine belief in, in the accusations that his advisors and he was hearing about the Templars. And it was probably very convenient that this also was a means of him being able to get their money while supposedly suppressing this uh, heresy. Yeah, we can be quite cynical about the medieval aspect or opinions on religion. You know, it was such an important 
part of what they do, that it doesn't have to be the religion was using an excuse to do something. It, it mm. can be that I have a genuine religious belief that this is happening. Mm-hmm. It's also quite convenient for me. Exactly. Coincidentally. Yeah, and I think those two motivations can work hand in hand. And yeah, it's very tempting to separate them out and see that seeing them as being somehow opposed. Yeah, one is a cynical excuse for the other when it's not necessarily the case. Exactly, yeah. And so how does all of this come to a head? What happens to the Templar? You mentioned before that there was a trial. Yeah, so basically on the Friday the 13th of October, 1307, the Templars are arrested in France. It's a pretty amazing and fast operation. Barely any of the Templars escape. And then they are tried. So what happens is before the arrests are made, Philip's actually circulated letters to all his sort of royal advisors and the people who are going to carry out these arrests in the different sort of regions of France. And this actually has a list of the accusations that are being made against them. So this is something that people, that these agents know in advance. And they're told basically to arrest the Templars, to imprison them, to sort of separate them as well so they can't communicate with one another, to torture them or threaten them with torture and to basically treat them very harshly. And at the same time, try and get them to confess to these crimes which have been drawn up. And in addition to this, he also wants an inventory of their various <laughs> estates so he knows how much money, how much good stuff that he can get off them. And unfortunately for the Templars, they are a lot of the Templars in France, they're not your fighting men. They are, you know, just a standard people who work on these estates. You know, they work on the mills and the farms or whatnot. And they're they're completely unprepared for this. It takes them by surprise. They're either tortured or threatened with torture, and a lot of them confess to these crimes, as you probably would when you're threatened with torture. And really, as soon as that happens, it's very difficult for the Templars to go back, and it's very difficult for anyone to defend them because they've confessed to these heresies, or a lot of them have. If you retract your confession, you can then be deemed a relapsed heretic and burnt, so it's very difficult to go back on a confession once you've made it in these kinds of situations. And also from the papacy's point of view, what Philip's done is completely against the right sort of order. It's, I suppose it's illegal in many ways in that he's imprisoned a religious order that's answerable to the papacy and, and sort of tried them himself. And actually this should have come under the jurisdiction of the church. But again, once Philip's able to say to the Pope, well, look, they've confessed a lot of this stuff. It's very difficult for the Pope to actually really step in and help them. And he does try and step in and support the Templars. But because of the difficult position that the Pope's in at the time and the, the sort of influence that Philip's able to exert over him, there's not really much that can be done. And the other rulers of Europe, the King of England, King of Aragon, they're a lot more sympathetic towards the Templars, but they're not willing to sort of confront Philip over this. He's the most powerful monarch in Europe. So essentially, once he does what he does and he forces these confessions, the order is doomed, um, pretty much. And what do we know about... So Robert de Sable is the Grand Master of the Templars in the game in the First Crusade. What do we know about the last Grand Master? How much of a fight does he put up to protect the Templars? Yeah, well, he's an interesting character. So Jacques de Molay is the last Grand Master. I mean, he's really received quite a lot of criticism in scholarship, more recently some more supportive reassessments of him. But really, he's unable to effectively defend the Templars. He's quite an old man by the time of the arrest. Um, he is tortured and he also confesses very early on um, in the trial and he does sort of backtrack and he sort of flip-flops a little bit over his confession and sort of retracting it but ultimately he's not able to really sort of mount any kind of defense and one of the problems is that the Templars are kept in isolation from one another so it's difficult to see what Mole really could have done in that situation anyway because he couldn't necessarily communicate with his fellow members of the order but I think one of the problems for the rank and file is that they hear that Mole has confessed and they know that the other sort of high-ranking Templars have also 
confess and are not able to mount this resistance. So it, it does make it difficult for the Templars to mount their own defence, although they do try and do this. And there are sort of groups who are able to sort of mount some semi-effective defence, but ultimately nothing uh, comes of this. And actually what's interesting is that from the French perspective, there's a point in the trial around sort of 1310 or so where things start to get delayed because the papacy is insisting that the um, interrogations come under papal jurisdiction and so forth. And actually the French start to burn some of the Templars as relapsed heretics um, and about 50 of them are burned in Paris in, in 1310. And this really scares a lot of the other members of the order who are thinking about defending themselves and a lot of them just hold their hands up and say that they're guilty and will take the punishments that don't result in in executed. I was going to ask how so many of them got burned because the first instance of heresy doesn't normally carry a death penalty. You have to commit heresy the second time Mm. to get burned. So is this a case of them relapsing and perhaps under more pressure and torture, confessing again, so then they're relapsed heretics that second offence is what gets them burned. Yeah, yeah. So it's often that they've, yeah, they've confessed and then they retract their confession and then they aren't deemed to be relapsed heretics. So that's the risk. Whereas if you confess and you accept your confession, you can be, maybe you get perpetual imprisonment. That would be a particular harsh penalty. But otherwise, you you know, you get smaller terms of imprisonment. And a lot of the Templars actually sometimes give them pensions and they join other religious orders sometimes. And they, you know, a lot of them, survive the trial they're not executed and they're not necessarily in prison for any great deal of time so yeah i think for the sort of rank and file it, it takes a lot of a lot of strength and a lot of courage to really stand up against torture and if you have already confessed under torture to then retract your confession because it's a good chance you'll be burnt as a result and how then if this is mainly focused in france and as you mentioned the king of england the king of aragon the pope other rulers aren't as hostile to the Templars. How does the international element of it collapse? If it's brought down in France, why doesn't the rest of it survive? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think from the point of view of, say, the Kingdom of England, Kingdom of Aragon, that's sort of the two sort of interesting case studies in the sense that these are two areas where you have, you know, large numbers of Templars, and they're in close communication with the French and with the papacy and they're sort of neighbouring French territory. So they're very much integrated in what's going on, and they're very aware of what's going on in France. And both the Kings of Aragon and the Kings of England, they yeah, they sort of oppose what Philip's doing and they don't necessarily agree with it. And in England, for example, you also don't have torture being used as part of common law. So and the Templars are treated a lot more leniently. They're not forced into confessions in the same way. Far, And there are sort of people who come forward and support them and defend them. But ultimately, with the trial going so badly in France... I think the other kings realise that ultimately the order's probably going to be suppressed at some point because the Pope is going to have to do that. It's very difficult to, you know, suppress an order in one region and not in its totality. And I guess um, also when there's confessions that they're doing all of these things, that's exactly sealing their fate. Yeah, exactly. And I think for, and again, don't want to sort of sound overly cynical here, but for the kings of England and Aragon, there is the opportunity of making the best of a bad situation. The Templars are accused of this. They're probably done for anyway might as well play along with this and try and get some of the territories and some of their possessions for yourself and their money as well so i think there is a point where other monarchs are willing to support the templars but when they see that really the game's up and their days are numbered they they're happy to sort of go along with what the pope suggests and and what the king of france is essentially pushing for i suppose a bit of frightening kind of realpolitik in there that 
they're going to fall anyway. If I go along with what Philip's trying to do, I might be able to get all of those lands and properties that they have, maybe get Philip on side a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. And Philip's he's the most powerful monarch in Europe. So he's sort of a, a person who probably wants to keep on side. And as you mentioned there, not all of the Templars were executed. I think sometimes we think that they mm. were all killed, you know, on that Friday the 13th. In the game, we see the Templars living on as a secret organisation kind of fronted by this multinational company. Do you think the Templars continued in any kind of guise or did they just disappear completely? There's two ways to think about it. I mean, on the one hand, the members didn't disappear. As you said, they survived. So there is the continuity in that, yes, these people are are still there, but the organisation is completely suppressed. So there is no pseudo-Templar continuation. But you do have things like in Iberia, there's a couple of orders that are established in the years after the trial, which have Templar estates and have ex-members of the Templars forming part of them. Likewise, some of the Templar estates are meant to be handed to the hospitalers. It doesn't really happen in reality. So the hospitalers do absorb some of the Templar estates as well. So there is a continuity in that sense, but in an organisational sense, the order is no more. I guess it's just that the game plays into that kind of idea that they weren't wiped out and something could have continued, you know, Mm. if they were reluctant to leave the Templar order, they could have kept going in secret. We can't disprove that, can we, I guess? (laughs) No, no, I suppose not. And and I think a lot of idea also comes from the um, 18th, 19th century, the Masonic reimagining of Templars and the idea that some of the Templars fled. Uh, from France to England and Ireland and Scotland and established these secretive orders. And I think there's no historical evidence for any of this. So from a historical point of view, it's not true. But yeah, you can see why why people believe that and why why that's that's being constructed. And I guess just to end on, I wonder why you think we're so interested in the Templars. I think it's possible to position them as kind of, you know, they drove religious war and strife in the Near East were powerful, wealthy landlords in Europe and then they fell having confessed to this whole ream of crimes and heresies and were relatively short-lived in the grand scheme of history, yet they seem to have this hold over the collective imagination. Why are we so obsessed with the Templars? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I think the trial has so much to do with it. The fact, as you said yourself, like the fact that you have this prestigious order that are, they're defending the Holy Land and all that, and then they are tried and suppressed as heretics, essentially, which is sort of anathema to what they were meant to be doing. And I think the secretive nature of the, of the Templars, which we've alluded to a, a few times, is a big part of that. That It just makes them so open to, to this kind of myth history, this sort of pseudo-history that's developed over the years afterwards, which I think is sort of fueled this fascination with them. And even at the time in the years just after the trial, you have the curse of Jacques de Molay, the idea, because when Jacques de Molay is executed in 1314, and shortly after Clement V, the Pope, and Philip IV, the King, die as well in the same year. And there's this idea that Jacques de Molay, when he's been led to the stake, he sort of says, you're both going to die in the same year. And this is sort of propagated by chroniclers in the years after the trial. So this sort of Templar myth and the curse of Molay were sort of contemporary ideas as well. So I think it can, you know, shocked <laughs> Europe at the time, undoubtedly. And it led to these myths and these legends, which I think are perpetuated. And and it's, uh, yeah, such a ripe area of history for this kind of myth history, if you like. It's almost a perfect story as well, isn't it? You know, we can see the birth, we can see the expansion, the growth to these great heights, and then we can see this huge fall, which kind of seems to close the book, but sort of leaves a bookmark in there that, yeah. that conspiracy theories can 
wheedle into. Exactly. And also, I think just looking at the sort of history of the Templars, uh, from a historian's perspective, they do they sort of fit into most aspects of the medieval world. You know, they're involved in the Crusades, but they're big sort of landowners in the West. They're a monastic order. They're a military order. They're part of the church, but they're fight- they cross into so much of the medieval world in some way that I think they are a very interesting topic to study as well. So I think, I suppose, that's another reason why people are sort of fascinated by it. And I guess also in a world that's almost always been obsessed with chivalry and knights and things like that, they're seen as the pinnacle, of the, the ultimate yeah. fighting force of the medieval world as well. Exactly. Yeah, there's all the sort of, yeah, chivalric side of things and the romantic side of things as well. Yeah. Fascinating. It's been brilliant to dive into the, well, unfortunate for them that they fell, but brilliant <laughs> for us to dive into it. And thank you so much for sharing all of that with us, Mike. No problem. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. That's the end of our series on Assassins versus Templars. Thank you for listening to The Fall of the Templars and make sure you haven't missed any of the rest of this special series. There's eight episodes of Assassins versus Templars for you to enjoy. Make sure you're following the Echoes of History podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to listen to the rest of the series. There's episodes with world-leading experts on the Crusades, the Knights Templar and the rise of the Assassins. This series is a special collaboration between Ubisoft and History Hit with post-production undertaken by Paradiso Media.